Okay, so just an announcement. The group picture will be at three o'clock. Uh, meeting, where's the meeting point is the house? Here, okay, at three o'clock today. Uh, so, the photo? for the photo, photo. yes. Uh, so, um, any questions or comments from first lecture for Professor? Alex. Um, I would like to address your hypothesis or claim that real bills are responsible for a higher degree of unemployment um, after the war. The, after world the destruction of the bill market. Yeah, the destruction of the bill market um, after World War I is responsible for some degree of unemployment um, after the war. Um, the, the pro I'm, a, I'm a historian, um, and my problem with this claim is um, that there's no unemployment statistics for uh, the pre-World War I period, not that I know of that are um, robust, accurate. Um, and I have a different version of the story, which I got mostly from Barry Eichengreen, um, an economic historian. Um, the thing is that in, in the US, in the 1920s, um, the unemployment rate is something at around 5%. Whereas in Great Britain, it is around 10%. The traditional answer that historians give is that in 1925, when um, uh, Britain decides to go back onto the gold standard, they don't go, first of all, they don't go onto a gold standard, they go on what academics call the gold exchange standard. So central banks in Europe, and uh, predominantly in Europe, they don't, they don't just hold gold as their reserves, but they also hold dollars and pounds sterling. That's why it's not called the gold standard, as in pre-1914, it's called the gold exchange standard. So um, the Bank of France, for instance, holds pounds sterling, but doesn't cash them in for gold at the Bank of England because it knows that they're good and they, and they don't want to upset the system. They're trying to rebuild the pre-World War I system. Another explanation is that um, structural unemployment, this very terrible term, um, in the UK is something very unique. Because they go back on gold, um, both Barry Eichengreen and Murray Rothbard make the point that Great Britain went back on the pound, they went back onto the pound, but at an overvalued rate. Um, the British expanded their money supply to, fu to fuel a war, and they were hoping that they could contract the money supply with the amount of sterling in circulation versus the amount of gold in their reserves to sort of bring back a state of a pre-World War I level parity of pound sterling to gold. They weren't able to do that. And so what happened is the pound sterling became overvalued. The implication is that... Well, the, the price level during the war has risen mm -hmm. uh, many times more than the gold <coughs> supply. Mm -hmm. That's right. Risen. Uh -huh. The price of, and and the actual amount of money in circulation. Um, I'm not saying that it's. I'm, I'm not um, attributing the quantity theory of money. 
a proportional increase. I'm just saying that there was an increase in the price level and an increase in the amount of uh, Bank of England notes in circulation. And I think the number is 200% increase from 1914 to 1918. Um, the, so if the pound sterling was overvalued in 1925, the implication is that British exports become more expensive. Now this is one of the reasons exports, or the British economy in general, which is based on um, not import substitution, but importing raw materials and exporting them again, began to, began to go through the slump. The important industry is the shipbuilding sector, which we already talked about as a very sort of traditional important sector in the British economy. But then on top of it, the British government is also giving high unemployment benefits so the unemployment benefits are so high during this period that workers in the UK are actually encouraged not to get a job and stay on the job. And so this explains why in the UK there's around a 10% rate of unemployment pre-Great Depression, pre-1929, and in, in the US it's about 5%. Um, my problem with um, the real um, real bills of exchange, uh, the real bill market um, being destroyed, is that I don't, I don't understand how, I understand theoretically why there would be um, sort of less economic activity if the bill market is destroyed, but the evidence is not, is not clear. I understand the theoretical implication, implication, but I don't actually see any evidence. There's no specific companies, no specific people um, or uh, statistics, dates, or anything that I can sort of wrap my, wrap my head around. Um, as a historian, this is a problem for me because I'm still looking for to put together all the sort of causes for the Great Depression. To say that the real bills market is the sole cause is too great of a claim in my opinion. I, I didn't say that, I'm sorry. Okay. I said the large part, just how large, <clears throat> I don't know, and I don't think in my own lifetime we can answer this question. Far more work should be done. Go ahead and finish. Um, the other, the other problem is that um, Barry Eichengreen and I think there's a couple other uh, Michael Bordeaux, another famous economic historian. Um, they talk about the countries that went off the gold exchange standard first recovered more quickly. And what you see in their GDP figures, um, first uh, with, with the UK, the sterling block in 1931, then the US in 1933, and then France in 1936, is that their economies, um, you just see GDP increases um, the sooner they go off the gold exchange standard. Um, this isn't disputed, and I think the statistical literature is robust. But I'm not, you, I'm, I'm not saying that this is evidence that the gold standard doesn't work. What I, my implication is that there, this wasn't the gold standard. This was a gold exchange standard subject to different problems. Um, I, I'm, what I'm trying to say, the ultimate point I'd like to get at is that causes for the Great Depression are problematic. And I would like... Um, to take a, like a, 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 a more deep look into what the role that real bills played in this thing. And if there's, an, in your opinion, do you know of any sort of historian that has done more work on real bills and their role in the 20s? Is there, is there anybody that you could recommend? 
I'm not aware. There might be, but I'm not aware. Because you it's, it's out of fashion, <laughs> completely out of fashion. It's dismissed without any research or argument, you know. Fair enough, but this, this poses a huge problem to your hypothesis that the real bills market destroyed uh, that after, after it's destroyed after World War I, somehow contributes to unemployment. If there's nobody backing it up, other, if the only thing backing it up is a theoretical implication. Well, that's all I'm claiming, theoretically. Now, of course, there's another gap which you didn't mention, that where is the historical evidence that there was such a decision to block the return of the real bill circulation? There is no evidence. And, and you could use this as an argument against me. But I would argue that there is no evidence because this was done in secret. This was done in order to uh, make it look natural. But we all know, at least those of us who have been uh, following these courses for a number of years, because this is not the first time we are discussing real bills, that real bills do arise spontaneously. And there is no reason, there is no reason why in the period 1918 to 1925 they should not have arisen. There was the problem of reconstruction in Europe. There was a problem of feeding millions and millions of people at the verge of starvation, including Germany, where the blockade had an impact lasting for several years. It could not be restored overnight. Just armistice and then foods were available in stores. They were not, and it took a long time. So that is my, uh, my argument. It's not a proof. I don't think you can prove it, and I don't think you can disprove it either. It's just the assumption that real bills should have started circulating spontaneously right after the armistice, or at the latest, when the peace treaty with Germany was signed. And it didn't. And uh, of course, London, meaning Great Britain, was in a unique position to block this, because they were the clearinghouse. And if uh, there were directives from the British government that they should not start uh, drawing real bills and uh, facilitating the uh, circulation of real bills internationally, then of course the British firms, financial firms, would just have to follow this. Um, this, um, this argument is okay. I'm okay with the argument. Uh, if if um, I was a historian and pre-World War I, I find out, I, I, I do my homework, I do my research, and I found out there's a large volume of real bills in circulation, and they're um, contributing to some amount of economic activity, I can, I can somehow get to some statistic, no matter how broad, say 10 to 50 percent, 
whatever the number may be. It's pre-1913. Pre-1913, 1914, right? And then I and then I do and then I get to the 1920s and I see that these bills are not in circulation at all. That's a fact. You got, a fact. you accept. Yeah, uh, I don't, well, I'm I actually don't. I, the first time I heard about real bills is when I got here. And um, I've never actually done any original research or secondary source research on real bills. That's why I'm so curious. Can I just say, you should read Heinrich Ritterhausen's essays um, on reinventing book, money. Book, it's a book, 1930, published in the year now. Mm -hmm. Yes. For your information, I have that book of Heinrich Ritterhausen here with me. If you want to, you can look at his footnotes. Maybe there's a few to what you are looking for. Maybe, maybe. Okay. Uh, another book that I think would be of interest to you is Benjamin Anderson. He writes about this period, and I have to take exception to what you said about real bill circulation in the 1920s. It was not real bill circulation in the 1920s. It was cut off before the war. Right. And in the 1920s, there was artificial injection of credit into the system from the Fed mostly, partly in support of the British effort to uh, get back on gold. And an artificially induced credit, it was called a, a coup de whiskey to the stock market. And the, the boom of the 1920s and the excess credit caused the consequent collapse. Sure. No, I, I'm sorry, Rudy. That's very controversial. I, I wanted to add something, which is you say that after they um, abandoned the, the false pretense of a gold standard, GDP went up. Um, I have a big, big problem with the very definition of GDP, which I think GDP, you could pejoratively say, is destruction plus production. <laughs> and so if you um, start expanding counterfeit credit, which is my definition of inflation, naturally you'll get an increase in GDP, at least until the capital consumed is so great that even despite your, your boosting of, of crack cocaine, you can't get any more juice. But before that point, you can get a lot of GDP. Uh, you know, this is pure Keynes, right? If you, if you have two cities and one destroys the other, GDP goes up. So the fact that GDP rose does not necessarily form the conclusion that a lot of people would take from that. Um, it's, a, it, it, it's, it's more complex than they, they do account for like a deflator, right? So if there uh, is a certain amount of price changes where you would measure a certain amount of price change that actually occurs from inflation, they're, they're deflated for that. But that's, right, that's a technical point that we also can't take. I know it's, a, it's, a, it's um, you, can't, you can't use a change in consumer prices as to understand capital destruction. Um, I, I, would, I would almost look at you know, an analogy of you're driving a race car, you're looking at the level in the gas tank and the changes in the level of the gas tank as sort of a rough proxy of what the driver is doing with the throttle. Meanwhile, the problem is you have metal fatigue in the suspension and something is about to go flying off the racetrack at, at terrible force. Looking at the changes in the level of the gas tank can't necessarily help you understand the actual GDP Just as a reminder, what GD and we all use it. Okay, it's defined as consumption plus investment plus government expenditure plus the trade deficit. Okay, <coughs> this is the most stupid way of defining uh, how healthy an economy is. Okay, now, let me just why, say that even why is it uh, uh, a 
stupidly off for looking at how... Government expenditure. We have an order here. Government expenditure. Even if we accept for the sake of argument that GDP went up after the uh, collapse, so-called collapse of the gold standard, I uh, want to say something which is very important. You have to be a scholar of the gold standard. And during the past, say, 50, 40, 50 years, this was not possible to make a, a thorough study of the gold standard <coughs> because it was a taboo subject. The Federal Reserve uh, uh, had its, and the research departments of the Federal Reserve banks, there are 12 of them, uh, influenced the economic research scene. They did not subsidize any effort to uh, do research on the Goldstone. So I want to press the following point. The uh, problem is not that the gold standard which they returned to, including Britain, was what you call gold exchange standard, I would prefer to call the gold bullion standard because gold exchange standard is where the gold can be replaced by gold exchange, which means gold uh, convertible currencies. So there were central banks which did not have a gram of gold, but they had dollars, they had uh, pound sterling, which technically so anyhow, that's a minor uh, terminological point. But the important point is this, and please take this home with you and think about it and write it down and, and uh, try to uh, narrow the problem down to this one. The gold standard is just one leg. The other leg is the real bill market. Why? Because the real bill market is the clearing house of the gold standard. So if you have the gold standard without the real bill market, it is depriving the gold standard of a vital organ. Without this, it's incompetent, it's not capable of doing its job, and it's going to collapse sooner or later. So the government sabotaging the gold standard was precisely the destruction of the real bill market. And I'm not saying this was done on purpose or this was done inadvertently, uh, because I don't know. And it doesn't matter ultimately. The fact is that the gold standard, <coughs> whatever it was after the uh, World War, after World War One, it was a crippled gold standard. It was not viable. It was going to collapse sooner or later. So if it didn't do the job, uh, that is the reason, because it was deprived of its clearing house. Now, the concept of clearing is a very important one. You know in every big city there is a clearing house, there are several banks in a city, but at the end of every business day they meet these banks or the representatives 
with a bunch of checks which they collected during the day, meet at the clearinghouse and they are crossing the trade. So the uh, banks uh, have, uh, say two banks, have some credit and some debit against one another and they cast this out and only the difference is being settled in cash. And, and uh, this is a tremendous <coughs> simplification if you think of it because most trades are cast out so they don't have to bother about worrying about settlement. The same applies to the gold standard. If you really wanted to finance every little transaction in terms of gold, it's just not going to work. You have to have bills, and the bills are cast out at the clearinghouse. Well, in this case, the clearinghouse is not a building, it's just a concept. The clearinghouse is the bill market, where all these bills enter, and then those that on the credit and debit side are cancelled out, then only the difference what remains, uh, the net indebtedness will have to be settled in gold. So what I'm suggesting to you is that you should not, at least in my opinion, should not use the argument that the gold standard doesn't work because after World War I it didn't work. Well, <laughs> it was already the result of the sabotage. What we have, what we had after World War I between 1918 or 1919 and 1931 when Britain left the gold standard. And the British gold standard was doomed anyhow. Why? Because, not just because it was the wrong exchange, you pointed out Britain went back to the gold <coughs> standard at the original parity. Uh, a British pound was worth just as much gold in 1925 as it was worth in 1914, just before the, before the breakout of World War I. And that was deflationary for various reasons, because the price level increased manifold, and the gold uh, mining industry uh, output also increased, but not nearly as much, so you could argue on the basis of deflation. But the most important trouble with the British gold standard was the lack of clearinghouse. The uh, London was the clearinghouse of the whole world before 1914. And then it didn't even clear its own uh, uh, money circulation after they, they went back to the gold standard. So there were several things wrong with it. It was doomed. It, it uh, would have never worked, the gold standard in Britain. The, uh, uh, and of course, as you probably know, Winston Churchill, the later 
prime minister during World War II, for instance, was the Chancellor uh, of the Exchequer. Yeah, and and <laughs> it was <laughs> it was his fault. He didn't do his homework. This was a, a stillborn idea of going back to the gold standard as as Britain did. So uh, I, I don't think you can blame the deflation and the unemployment and all the things you have mentioned about uh, the 10% unemployment in Britain after 1929 and before 1931 and the great increase in GDP and uh, reduction of unemployment and so on. Actually, you can question that too, because the statistics are, uh, are so distorted. The, for instance, in the United States, they say, oh, once Roosevelt put those uh, reforms or those uh, um, <coughs> government regulations, including confiscation of privately held gold into effect, it was like a great relief. All of a sudden, the uh, factories started humming, and all the workers. The, this is, of course, uh, a completely false picture. What happened was that there were fluctuations, but the unemployment was not nearly solved. The unemployment problem, the uh, <coughs> firms still went bankrupt, there was more contraction, there was more fall in, uh, more, uh, fall in the stock market. Uh, the only thing you might say is that the banks uh, were stronger, yes, because in 1933 Roosevelt closed the banks and did not allow the, the weak banks reopen. It's quite a different story today when <laughs> they <laughs> say they apply the stress test and all banks come off with the f flying colors because all banks get government bailout money. In those days they didn't. Those banks which were beyond salvage, they were up for grabs and the bigger banks, the better, the stronger banks could gobble them up. So, uh, I'm sorry, I have to say there's a far more, a lot more work has to be done, including the uh, historians as well. Yes. If I can say, I don't, I don't mind being the person that does that work. Um, uh, I find the argument that um, whatever the reason, uh, for whatever reason the real bills market is destroyed after World War <coughs> I, does, it doesn't matter. If you can show that the real bills market contributed to economic activity beforehand, that's a good enough reason for me to say that uh, destroying the market contributed to unemployment post-World War I. Um, I wouldn't reject the gold standard at all. I would, um, in fact, if, uh, if I had a choice to somehow create a new monetary order, I wouldn't even state it as it was in the late 19th century because there's a series of banking acts that were passed during the Civil War in the U.S that distorted the system. It's not so much the gold standard here, talking about this particular period, but it's the real bills. 
because the sabotage, the government sabotage first eliminated the real, the bill market. Yeah, and the gold standard you, was a constant. You can't actually prove a real cause. You're saying that through the system, it's it, it inadvertently or or probably sabotaged the system. That's a good that's that's a good enough argument for me that the that the gold exchange standard, this phony gold standard, killed the killed the real bill system. That's oh that's okay. I I, I, I buy that argument. That's that's a good argument. Um, but my, my, um, my do you deny the existence of the wage fund? Oh. <laughs> to be fair, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not an expert, or I haven't studied it enough, but I would say that... Well, nobody is an expert, including <laughs> myself, because the, the, this is something which was the insight of Hirtzushausen, uh, uh, was n never picked up by anybody, there was no, I mean, uh, thousands of people started studying Keynes as if it was the uh, revelation, you know, like the Book of Mormon was <laughs> dropped, you know, and everybody had to study it. No, uh, Rittershausen was ignored pretty well. Nobody, but nobody took the trouble of studying it. So we are all starting <coughs> from the same level of ignorance. But isn't the idea I think it's fantastic, right, that um, wages actually get paid. Well, thank out of, you. Out of That's the all I want. And that there, and that Ru yeah. Rudy has a comment. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. If you don't mind, you said it's very controversial that uh, the inflation caused the Great Depression. Uh, you know this this whole uh, boom and bust cycle. There's because you would say that um, whatever. Yeah, no, it, it's just um, I'm not. I'm not I'm not an expert on Since it. we have to well, come back by three, I think we should call it a day. Benjamin Anderson's book, uh, Economy, and, Economy and the Common Cause. Benjamin Anderson experienced this. He was a banker. <coughs> he lived through it. He wrote and gathered statistics about how much credit was extended. And he talks about the uh, committee of honest bankers approaching the Fed and advising them to stop expanding the credit. He writes this up. So please read the book. And it's, you know, to me, the fact that it's controversial shows that nobody has studied this period of history properly. But it, Benjamin Anderson talks about exactly that. Pardon me, what was the name? Econ 